Uh, welcome here on this Good Friday service here at Willingdon Church. If you're here for the first time, you are so welcome here. We're so thankful that, you're here, that you are here. For those who have been attending for many, many years, we're thankful as well. For those who do not know me, my name's Vin. I'm one of the pastors here, and I have the honor and privilege of sharing uh, this Good Friday message. So before we do that, I want to read from John chapter 19, verses 1 to 3. And then verses uh, then 28 to 30. So let me read this for us. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it, put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his Spirit. Since this is um, Good Friday, I want to be able to share with you the history of poutine. Here's what we actually traditionally know about poutine here in Canada. According to some historians, poutine was created at around 1950 in Quebec. The original recipe started off with just fries and cheese, and it was usually served in a paper bag. Eventually, after time, it was actually served on a plate. But customers complained that the fries got too cold too quickly. So you know what they added? Hot gravy. Quebecois who claim to have created the dish have seen poutine sort of change over the years in our country. In order to, to sell it to the masses, you have to sort of change the recipe and its ingredients. But to Quebecois, Canadians have destroyed the dish by using cheap fries, non-squeaky cheese, and watered-down gravy. What may seem like poutine to the rest of the world, to Quebecois, is a travesty. Look, there are good reasons why some things never change. This also applies to the Easter story. There are two points I want to make in, a, in this two-part message. And the first point is a devotion to death. And the second point is, is it's a, a devotion to life. Okay? So uh, devotion to death, devotion to life. Let's go to the first point, devotion to death. You know, in recent years, some Christians have wanted to change. That's Christians wanted to change the message and image of Jesus. Some have wanted the, the image of Jesus to be a bit more modern. 
They wanted Jesus sort of looking at you, winking, giving you a thumbs up with one hand, and on the other hand, he's holding a craft beer or a latte. And somehow he has the most epic waxed beard. Some believe that if the modern church, the church of today, revised the image of Jesus, then maybe the church would have more people coming to church and believing in Jesus. Some have even suggested that we move, as modern Christians, move away from the cross. The cross, to some, is outdated, unkind, and violent. It has no place in the civilized, modern world. But I want to start with a quote from the 19th century Anglican bishop of Liverpool, England, J.C. Ryle, when talking about what it would be like to preach and to give a message like this without the cross, Ryle says, I would feel like a soldier without arms, an artist without his pencil, a pilot without his compass, or a laborer without his tools. Let others, if they desire, preach the law and morality. Let others hold forth the terrors of hell and the joys of heaven. Let others drench their congregations with teachings about the sacraments and the church. But give me the cross of Christ. So let's do that. Let's begin with the cross of Christ. The Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they spend one-third of their entire content on the final week of Jesus' life. Sort of like how a movie zooms in to its main character in the most epic scene. The climax is the crucifixion of Jesus. Without the cross, the gospel story is completely empty. But even before getting to the climax of the movie, we need to know what has led up to this point. What's led up to this point of the movie in John chapter 19, what I had read. You see, up to this point, Jesus, before John 19, has not slept, not a single wink. He's been up praying all night, the Bible tells us. His physical exhaustion would most likely have heightened his senses. According to a 2019 study conducted by the Journal of Neuroscience, researchers found that the lack of sleep may make you more sensitive to pain. So right after uh, Jesus' arrest in John 18, we are informed that Jesus is taken to Annas, then to Caiaphas, the high priest, and finally to Pilate. We might read it in a quick succession, but what actually happens is he's just slowly passed on. The journey is long and continues. At the beginning of John 19, we are told from the start that Jesus is flogged. This flogging actually refers to a light beating. It was a light beating allowed by Pilate to appease the Jews. 
because they demanded Jesus to be punished. In the Synoptic Gospels, that's just Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they talk about not the beating, the light being, the flogging, but they talk about Jesus being scourged. According to the gospel timeline, Jesus was beaten first and then scourged. Many pass over this because we just want to get to the best parts. We just want to get to the best parts of Jesus where he makes us feel good. But being scourged would entail Jesus being tied on a post with his back exposed. He would have been beaten with a leather whip, and on that leather whip would have been pieces of metal and broken bone attached to the whip. And they would whip him to tenderize the body like you would do as you tenderize a piece of steak to soften it you beat it. The whip would have torn because of the bone and the metal fragments. It would have torn through skin and tissue at times, exposing bone and even intestines. The Roman soldiers would scourge the, the flesh of the back, the arms, the legs, and the neck. Once they were done with that, that would turn you over. They would do the entire front of the body and then eventually the face. This is why the prophet Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus, actually spoke on the scourge of Jesus, saying in 52.14, his appearance was so marred beyond human resemblance. Roman soldiers would have then driven five to seven inch metal spikes through Jesus' wrists and feet while he was laying flat down on the wooden cross. The crucifixion was actually meant and was done in a very public place during this time. Put it this way. If Jesus' crucifixion were done today, do you know where it would be done? the Roman soldiers would have done it right in front of Metro Town Mall. That's where it would have been done. With a bloody, naked man for all to see. The reason why it was so done publicly was meant to completely show all the horror and the shame of what the cross brought. Though there are many... There are many historical paintings of Jesus on a cross. Most paintings, if not all historical paintings of Jesus, would have covered his private parts. But most likely, Jesus was most likely naked on the cross, adding to the shame. Those crucified like Jesus would have no control over their bowels throughout their time on the cross, adding to the shame. You know that the pain on the cross was so horrendous, they had to invent a word to explain the pain. 
It comes from two Latin words. The first word, the first Latin word is the word ex, which is translated as from or out of. The second part of the word is the word crux, which is translated as cross. So when you put the two words together, it actually literally means from or out of the cross. From this, we get the English word excruciate. The Roman Empire had perfected crucifixion for 500 years. During, historically written, during the uprising of slaves led by Spartacus, 6,000 crosses were made. And people were, 6,000 people were also crucified. And they were lined up, 6,000 of them, all the way to Rome for all to see. The Roman politician Cicero considered crucifixion the most cruel and hideous of tortures. The practice was eventually banned by Emperor Constantine in the 4th century. PBS in the US, the uh, public broadcasting service, did a documentary series on Christianity. And they state in this documentary that Christianity is the only major religion, only major religion to have its, as its central focus the suffering and degradation of its God. Why the cross? The Bible tells us that we have all sinned. We have all wronged God by trying to live our lives without him. We, who are sinful and broken and separated from God and we're in need of saving, is what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us that we were actually made perfectly, made in his image. We were made sinless and perfect and in relationship with God. That was our purpose. We were to reflect his glory and then to enjoy him forever. Look, simply put, the brutality and the torture and the shame of the cross, it actually points to the weight and offense of our sins towards God. And the cross shows us that Jesus becomes the weight and offense that we deserve. As the Roman soldiers were devoted to the death of Jesus, so was God the Father devoted to the substitutionary death of Jesus the Son for the forgiveness of sins. Imagine with me right now. If I were to ask each and every one of you in this room, including myself, how bad or sinful we really are, I think this is how it would go. Especially as I wrestle through my own personal sort of thought process when I ask myself that question about how sinful I am. This is how I think it will go. Okay, I know I'm not perfect, but I think I'm better than most people. Do I think I'm better than most people in this room? Yes. (laughs) 
as my thought process continues, I start to think to myself, and this is the truth, I read through the Bible every year. On top of that, I read 50 books, 50 theological books every year. On top of that, I pray every day. I counsel people here at this church when people are in suffering and in need. I visit people. I advise people on their marriages, on whatever it is. <coughs> I pray for you. I show my love towards you. There are many nights, if you don't believe me, where I sacrifice my own family for you. I give more than 10% of my finances to the church. And on top of that, I'll give more money to Christian organizations outside of our church. So do I really think that I'm better than most of you in this room? Yes, I really do. Those are my honest thoughts. But here's the problem. With thinking like me, I'm only thinking horizontally. But the truth is, the Bible actually tells you, don't, don't, don't compare yourself horizontally. If you want a, a true challenge, think and compare yourself vertically between you and God. Amen. When you do that, when we all do that, we know that we are not so good after all. We all realize that we're broken and we're beyond repair. And even our good actions are actually selfish. And the Bible will tell us even evil, simply put, we are sinful. Then we have to turn to the one that can give us life, a life that we do not deserve. The only one that can give life to those who put their faith and trust in him is Jesus. As Pastor Tim Keller would say, you are more sinful than you could ever dare imagine. And you are more loved and accepted than you could ever hope. All at the same time. As we get to the next part of the message, so the first point was a 
devotion to death. The second point is a devotion to life. After the first section of just hearing about our sin and how devastating and broken we are and the cost that Jesus had to pay for our sins, which is the death on a cross with all its brutality. Praise God that the Bible tells us that God doesn't leave us to our own devices and then looks down upon us and screams at us and says to us, save yourselves. But unlike the pagan gods of the times of Jesus, and even of our time today, where the gods would say to you and I, be good, and I'll think about saving you. The God of the Bible bends down and sends his one and only son to save his people from themselves. In John chapter 19, verses 30, that I read in the beginning, informs us that as Jesus is about to die, he says the words, it is finished. The question we need to ask and then answer is, what did he finish? I want you to imagine with me. Imagine with me that I invite you over to my place for dinner. But before you come over, I warn you about a few things. I warn you about the street that I live in. Because the street I live on is very tight, very narrow. And the street always has cars parked on both sides of the road, which then creates a lack of space. So when two cars head in the opposite direction, there's trouble ahead. Because the car has to pull over to one side to let the other car through. I warn you, because cars will accidentally, on the street that I live on, hit side mirrors of parked cars. Or worse still, they will crash into parked cars. But even after my warning, as you head to my place, out of all the cars you could have crashed into, you crash into my car. And you cry out. As soon as I run out, I hear the noise. I run out. You step out of your car. And you cry out with all your heart. You cry to me, I'm so sorry. And the truth is, I actually know you're sorry. You're truly sorry. But you know what the truth is? Sorry is not enough. Sorry is not enough because it will not pay for the damage caused. Either you pay for the damage or I pay for the damage. But no matter what happens, someone has to pay. But what if the damage is too great? What if the cost is too high? You see, the Bible tells us that Jesus knew that this was the case for each and every one of us. Jesus knew that the damage you and I have caused towards God was too great. Jesus knew we would not and could not pay the cost of our lives to make things right. 
That's why in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it tells us, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, the Bible clearly tells us that Jesus did nothing wrong, but all the wrongs that you and I have committed, all the wrongs that are being committed by you and I right now in this moment, and all the future wrongs that you and I will commit are all bestowed upon Jesus and Jesus alone. This is like taking all the water of all the oceans in the entire world and putting them into a single cup. This idea should make us pause and think of when Jesus was praying in the garden right before his arrest. Because before his arrest, Jesus is pleading and begging God the Father, that Father, would you take this cup from me? Take the cup of wrath and of judgment away from me. But, God, but only if you think best. God's people should be amazed at how devoted Jesus was to destroying sin, to showing his life, his complete devotion to life. Jesus was so devoted to the gift of life that he gave his life. Have you ever been in front of a judge or been to court? For those who know my story, I have multiple times. Here in Canada, you can even go to court and challenge a speeding ticket that you have received here in court. But if you've ever been to court or been in front of a judge for any reason, small or big, the one thing we all know is that, is that you are completely helpless, dejected, and alone. You can plead. You can beg. You can say sorry, but all the power is where? In the judge's hands. It is a scary thought to know that your entire outcome and your future is held in someone else's hands besides your own. That's a scary thought. But Jesus is so devoted to giving you life, you and me life, that when you give your life, not just your life, but your circumstances and your future over to this judge, it's Jesus the judge that jumps from, from the bench, that jumps from the throne and stands beside you. And he tells the whole courtroom, I will take the consequences for this crime that this person's committed. I will take the punishment. So how should we respond if a judge did that, like Jesus, to the sin crusher and to the life giver? As Rosaria Butterfield best sums up, we are called to repent of the original sin that distorts us, the actual sin that distracts us, and the indwelling sin that manipulates us. This is a high and hard calling. Remember that sorrow is not enough, that a price needs to be paid, but it's paid by Jesus and by Jesus alone. Celebrate that when you put your trust in what Jesus has done, that that is 
enough. Do not live like you once did. Do not turn to yourself, but now live for him. Turn from the way you once lived because the way you once lived brings nothing but death and destruction. I want to conclude with this thought about what Jesus has done and who he is. That Christians all over the world and here today should be in awe and wonder of who Jesus is and what he has done. You know, I've lived here in Canada for 10 years and I still don't know much about hockey. The game itself, it completely confuses me. But as a good Canadian, I'll keep trying. Even though I do not know much about hockey, but even though when I was born and raised in Australia, even there, we heard of the name of the Great One. For those who don't know, Wayne Gretzky. The truth is, I've never, even to this day, I've still never personally seen him play. I've never even seen a single highlight of his playing days for the Edmonton Oilers on YouTube at all. I've never seen a single thing. But most, from what I've heard, would agree. Most would agree that he's the greatest hockey player of all time. But imagine with me with this. Imagine if Wayne Gretzky walked into our service right now, right into this room, and sat here in the front row. There would be many of you in this room, as you saw him walk in, you're just staring, like, that's Wayne Gretzky. And then as he sits in the front, all you can think of is, I'm going to wait till the service is done. I'm going to go and get a selfie with him. And if I can't, I'm also going to get a, a signature. So you're scrambling to find a piece of paper. And if you don't have a piece of paper, there'll be some of you in this room who are so desperate, you know, to get a signature from him, you'll grab the nearest baby. <laughs> and you'll go to Wayne Gretzky, sign this baby. <laughs> but you would all agree, if someone is great because of what he has done and what he has achieved, Wayne Gretzky, if he walked into this, would be in awe and wonder. But I tell you the truth. Here's the difference. The difference is that if Jesus walked into this room, you wouldn't want a signature. If Jesus walked into this room right now, you would be all on your knees. Amen. That's all and wonder. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you as we think and celebrate what you did on the cross. It was brutal. It was, it was harsh for some of us. It's disgusting. It's too violent. And yet, it was the will of your Father that you taken the punishment and you accepted the punishment that each and every one of us deserve, you took that on. So Jesus, we thank you. We praise you. But Jesus, you don't leave us there in that guilt and shame, but you give us hope. 
you tell us to, to put all our faith and trust in you, to our, that you take on all our sin, not just the past, not just the present, but also the future. So Jesus, we thank you for what you have done. We praise you, Lord God. But we don't pay, praise you from a distance. You call us into a relationship with yourself. You bring us in close. So Jesus, we thank you. And you don't just release us from our sin, but you give us life, to enjoy life. We know this because of what will happen because of your resurrection. So Jesus, for some of us in this room who are hearing for, this for the first time, would you draw them to your side? Would you let them realize that they are just as broken, as sinful, and as evil as I am? But would you lift them up? Would you let them know that you love them? Would you call them to turn, to repent, and put their faith and trust in you? And Jesus, may they then see the great hope that is to come. So Jesus, we praise you. We thank you. We stand and in awe and in wonder of who you are and what you have done. And only in your name, Jesus, do we pray. Amen. Amen.